Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about uh, today's guest. Um, it has um, been a while. She is a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute, um, a senior fellow Puba foreign policy expert type person. Um, she, uh, she's. I think she's one of the people for whom the word gallivanting around the globe applies, uh, both literally and figuratively. Um, my friend, Daniel Pletka, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks for having me. Don't forget up front to flag my podcast our, with Mark Thiessen, also your colleague at AEI, which is called more, even more aptly than The Remnant, What the Hell is Going On? Yes, I apologize for doing that. I was going to, I promise I was intending on getting that in there. I don't mind flagging it myself. Yeah, fair enough. In that vein, that's a good way to uh, start things. What the hell's going on in Israel? Yes, nothing good. Where to start? So when we're recording this, we're in the middle of a uh, a pause, a ceasefire, uh, a temporary ceasefire, and the exchange of Hamas hostages for Israeli held prisoners, uh, almost exclusively, uh, in fact, I think exclusively uh, terrorists, not all of them convicted, some recently arrested. It's a, a little bit of a complicated thing. The, the ceasefire has been extended for two days, and then I think it's just going to sort of go back to what it was, which is Israel's war to, uh, to destroy, they say, to destroy both the military and the administrative power of Hamas in Gaza. Yeah. So again, just still redating this for people. We're recording this midday on Tuesday. There was some talk about how Hamas did some, uh, detonated some devices, some exchange of fire. We don't know what that's going to play out. So some of this, we'll, we'll, we'll keep this big picture enough so that the specific issues of the news of the day um, won't affect things too much, hopefully. Um, so on the, on the, on the hostage exchange stuff, I'm, I'm kind of with our friend John Bedoritz and the guys at Commentary. Um, well, absolutely, you want these people freed no matter what. And you, you can't look at these little girls and little kids and not just get verklempt, you know, and feel, um, feel for the families. At the same time, is the as a strategic matter, right? I mean, I think the Wall Street Journal had a headline this week is that the, the two goals are to free the hostages and to wipe out Hamas. And there is a legitimate tension between those two things. As a strategic matter, is the pause for getting the hostages out undermining the ability of Israel to restart things? 
No, no, I don't think that's the problem. Uh, this is really interesting. This is a conversation not a lot of us are having. Um, I think that everybody thinks of the problem with this pause as something that is allowing Hamas to regroup, um, to recalibrate, to hide somewhere else. Um, and I, I'm sure that's true. The Israelis know that. Uh, I suspect that in Israel, it's also an opportunity um, to to pause and think about what their next steps are. They've had a huge op tempo, uh, operational tempo since they started. They've used more more bullets than, for example, the Ukrainians are using by a long shot. Uh, that's actually a problem for them because we haven't passed any legislation to give them some more. And so that's a little bit of a challenge because a lot of them actually come from us. But so I think that there are advantages on both sides. I think the bigger question here is this idea that Israel has that it's really embraced since its founding, the sort of no man left behind, mm-hmm. right? Um It's always been this way, and maybe your listeners will remember the case of Gilad Shalit, Mm -hmm. who was similarly a soldier uh, who was kidnapped, in this case a lone soldier, held in Gaza, and and then moved around somewhat. And the Israelis traded more than a thousand prisoners for him. A lot of those prisoners actually went on to be involved in the October 7th massacre and rose up in the ranks to very senior level. In fact, there are some very senior leaders in Hamas who actually have been part of prisoner exchanges. And there hasn't really been a serious and robust discussion in Israel about whether this is a good thing. This is sort of a permanent incentive plan to any terrorist group. Hey, Mm -hmm. Just hop over the border from Lebanon, grab a bunch of people, and then, you know, let's start talking. Uh, just hop over from from Gaza, steal people, and let's start talking. And there needs to be a serious national conversation in Israel about whether the costs and the benefits are actually correct, notwithstanding the fact that we see these poor you know, babies who are, you know, accompanied by masked, gun-toting Hamas terrorists. It's the visual versus the policy, and it needs it needs some rethinking. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I get, I I agree with you at, at a macro level. Just the politics of having kids, you know, it it it's just it. This is not. It seems to me woe betide the Israeli politician who brings up that conversation about little kids. It right now, like in the heat of the passion with an organized political movement. But I get you on the on the on the realpolitik of it. It's it's the incentive structure is messed up. Right. Yeah. So for the first month or so, my friends from Israel or close Israel watchers, I know um, the 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 gist was. Politically, October 7th was like strontium-90 for, for BB. You know, that was the poison that the Russians used that you didn't know you were dead yet because it took a while. Um, and that the, even among Likudniks, anger at BB is just fever pitched, but they can't, can't get rid of him during a war. But his political future is toast. And it seems like BB doesn't, hasn't gotten that memo and he thinks that he can salvage his political future by how he handles all of this. I was just wondering, do you think that people were right in the beginning? Do you think that's still true? Where do you see the future of this for Bibi? I, I don't think he has a future. Yeah. Um, 
the problem is always exactly the same. Israeli politics looks like American politics, only slightly grosser and smaller. Um, everybody who hates Bibi, and Bibi has, you know, people in every corner of the globe and every corner of his country who can't stand him, especially with this most recently formed government, not the unity government that happened after October 7th, but the government that was formed more recently where he brought in some, where he brought in some highly objectionable uh, types, uh, Smotrich Ben-Gvir and others who are, you know, bigots, racists, extremists. Um, uh, so no one wants Bibi to hang around. He's reached the end of his shelf life. And I don't know whether he knows it or not. In some ways, you know, he's obviously much smarter than Donald Trump, mm -hmm. but in other ways, this is just his life. And I think mm -hmm. he can't see himself outside of politics. Uh, I, uh, honestly, I just don't think, uh, I, I don't think that he thinks rationally about this, but it's inevitable. Sure, everybody used this occasion to jump on him and grind their own political acts. And that's kind of disgusting uh, because it wasn't the right time, you know, too soon. But soon enough, eventually, within months, there's going to be a reckoning. And I guess the the big question before Israelis is going to be, do you want to topple the government first or do mm -hmm. you want a commission of inquiry first? And I don't think they've had serious conversations about it. There have been a bunch of loudmouth politicians sort of standing up and saying, no, BB needs to go now. That's just dumb. Mm -hmm. You don't want in the middle of a war, even if you can't stand the man, you don't want to get rid of your leadership and start uh, the inevitable sort of, you know, souk like bazaar like negotiations um, for 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 politics. I think it's funny. I mean, just talking about this, you know, I was looking this morning uh, because it's Giving Tuesday, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about the context of when we're talking about this. It's Giving Tuesday. And so I've been getting all of these sort of Israeli fundraising things, give money to this, give money to that. But a bunch of them have been, hey, you know, the film festival is going to be next month and mm -hmm. you really should give money to that. I think we don't appreciate in Israel how a lot of things have gone back to usual. Mm -hmm. even as this war goes on and these hostages are there. And so those are the people I suspect who think that politics can continue as usual as well. But they're wrong. Among serious people who are paying attention to this, the intelligence failures that led to 10-7, are they, are they a 9 or a 10? Or are they a 3 or a 4? Where you can always, sorry, remember after 9-11, you could, you could find the stray memo for about this because there's always bureaucratic ass covering to say anything is possible, right? And so then you can retcon it and go, you know, use the black light and illuminate just the dots that you want to say, see, they were warned. Or was this in fact the, 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 a cock up so huge that you could see it from space? Yeah, no, the latter. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, spinal tap, this goes to 11. This is the most serious and, and more serious than, than the Yom Kippur War. 30, mm -hmm. 30 years and a day to the date, more serious than the Yom Kippur War. Um, a a cock-up of, of absolutely historic proportions and obviously with a commensurate price, right? So it wasn't like, you know, ooh, now we have to go to war and we're not prepared. It was, ooh, now 1,300 people have been brutally massacred. The question, I mean, there are going to be lots and lots of, of, of smarter takes on this once people have a better visibility into the decision making. But, you know, my initial impressions talking about this, looking at it, seeing what happens are, are a few. Uh, 
The first is is one that's very similar between Israel and and a lot of Western countries and the United States, and that is unbelievable overdependence on technical means. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's been down, who's seen the wall, who's seen any of the um, uh, border crossings, Lebanon, Syria uh, to Israel or, or Gaza in this case, um, knows the Israelis have really, really serious up there. Right. They've got, mm-hmm. you know, they've got they've got the satellites, they've got the drones, they've got the technical means on the ground. They've got the sensing technology. They've got small areas of no man's land. They're they're well set up. Okay. But that gives you a false sense of confidence Mm -hmm. that um, a determined enemy can't get through it. That's number one. Number two, the Israelis really thought that they knew Hamas. And there's a sort of a combo problem there. Number one, they thought that um, they, they really had them wired. Right? that they knew who was doing what, who was thinking what, where the bad guys were, where the nexuses were, where their different brigades and battalions were inside Gaza, neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood. They even knew where all the tunnels were. And therefore, in the event, they were well set up. And the answer is they didn't know. Right? They were completely confused. Now, there were two reasons for that. One is that Hamas went to a great deal of effort to confuse them. Uh, a very, very serious effort. And I, I actually saw that. I wrote a piece weirdly about this in the week before it happened. Um, and this was definitely a deliberate sort of head fake on the Israelis, making the Israelis think that Hamas was focused more on the West Bank and really wanted things to settle down in, in Gaza. And they believed it. Um, the second is contempt. You know, uh, for any of us who have been in Israel um, and know our friends in Israel, the Israelis used to look at the Arabs with some respect. Um, mm-hmm. They used to look at the Palestinians with some respect, not all of them. In the last 40, 30, 40 years have been really bad for that. You mm-hmm. know, it's not just the huge number of lost wars, the unbelievably incompetent militaries. It is the fact that, you know, these people have driven the Palestinian territories into the ground. And the Israelis kind of look at them like, you know, you, you're you're losers, you're stupid, you're dangerous, and you know, we don't think much of you. We respect the Iranians, right? That they respect. And so that's another problem. And the last one, I think, um, and this we hear from everybody, is that they um is that they took they took personnel off the ground. So there was no one at the border. So there were not people who physically saw the walls being breached. And um, and I guess a little footnote to that is the Hamas knew them so much better. You know, there were a bunch of secret bases right around that area in southern Israel near the Gaza border. And Hamas knew where they were. They were mapped. They weren't guarded. Right. So, uh, you know, if anybody's watched Fauda, you know, you've got these sort of houses sitting there like, no, we're just sitting there. They killed one of the guys in one of those bases in his bed. So all of that, you know, together is a, a massive fail. And the Commission of Inquiry will come together. But the, the problem for this is, yes, the Israelis are kind of like, yes, you know, very manly. I own this. We, we own this. We did this. But have they really learned the lessons? It's an interesting question because I just did a briefing with, the, with a bunch of very senior people from, from Israel yesterday. And it was off the record, so I can't talk much about it. But when they talk about Lebanon, you're like, okay, so what are you going to do about that? And it's like, mm, I don't know. 
I a bunch of what next questions, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I think probably Israelis do too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so let's assume the exchange of hostages ends. It will probably be an ugly ending one way or the no- another, right? And hostilities recommence and eventually they're going to be done in the North and they're going to start, at least according to their, the stuff we hear is that they're going to eventually start heading South which is going to be another global PR mess because that's where they told all the people to go. And we all know that Hamas defenders argue in such good faith that they will have, you know, uh, they will have reasoned um, and, and judicious responses to that. So, um, but so what does, what, what does defeating Hamas actually look like or what should it look like? Because they may not be the same thing. Look, those are the you're just you're asking the hardest questions, and I think and I think uh, you know you and I sitting here in our uh, in our little offices are kind of thinking about this and a little perplexed. Uh, you know, what do you do? What does it look like? Um, I think the Israelis are equally perplexed. They have this sentence, you know, that 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 it will be militarily and administratively finished. Right? Okay, fine. Um, that means you need to kill the people in Qatar too. And apparently they've promised not to do that. So I don't know what it looks like. So we know they've promised not to do that. Who do they promise that to? That's, that's, I've seen that reported. And, yeah. and I have no doubt that the Qataris have uh, made clear that they don't want that to happen. Um, I, I don't see how you do this without getting rid of the entire infrastructure. Because look, there are, let's say there are 40,000, know, give or take, Hamas fighters. Um, the Israelis think that they've killed 5,000 of them, again, give or take. So we still have 35,000 fighters. Okay. All right. Fair enough. They've got a target. So they're going to kill 35,000 more fighters, more or less. That leaves, I don't know, 2.1 million people in Gaza. Let's say a million of them emigrate. You still really got a pretty deep pool there to choose from. And, you know, this is the problem that I keep writing about. It's the one that no one wants to talk about because it involves a really, really difficult set of challenges, not simply for the Israelis, because, you know, tactically they're still in that phase, but for the United States in particular, which is look, as long as Iran is around, they come back. In each case, you know, all of these terrorist groups, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is a big part of this current ongoing conflict, right? Pej, Hamas, both of them have been hit really hard. Israel killed the founder of Hamas. That was really, really hard for the organization. And they, they tend to be, you know, especially in their early phases, they tend to have these single points of failure. Palestinian Islamic Jihad for years had a um, a guy named Yahya Ayash. He was he was the bomb maker. The Israelis finally killed him, and Page just collapsed. Right. The problem is they're back. Right. As long as you've got you know Big Daddy over in Tehran. You're going to have the resources, you're going to have the impetus, and you're going to have the strategic regional ambition to resuscitate, recreate Hamas 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. And that's, I know the Israelis know that, but they don't, they don't know where to go, right? It's like, it's like, no, 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 we're just working day to day. And there's no, 
there's no long-term answer there because then you are destined to fight this war again and again and again. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So let's, let's talk about Iran for a second. Um, I don't think we need to belabor the point that Iran has fingerprints here, right? I mean, like, it, my question is the causal arrow, right? Like, you're going to do the chart where, you know, is the decision, the, the decision to do 10-7, does it start in Iran and then go to Hamas? Or does Hamas ask Iran, say, are you cool with this? This is what we're planning. Like, what, where do you think the genesis of this comes from? It's a really good question. Um, I don't have a security clearance, and I suspect even if I did, I wouldn't know the definitive answer to that. I can tell you what I think. Um, and this is the piece I wrote, weirdly, as I said, the week before this happened. Um, so let's step back from October 7th for a second. And wait, let me, let me put in a little sidebar here. because I can't talk about foreign policy without saying how much I the executive branch and the evil things that they do. This question that you just asked me is exactly how the executive branch thinks about, um, about sponsorship of terrorism, right? It's not, 
hey, Jonah, did you go out and with half a million dollars go to a bunch of guys and say, hey, you know, blow up the White House. Uh, here's the money to buy the bombs. Here's some, a map of the White House. Here's the metro map. Here's what you need to do. Now you know what you need to do. Go. And the White House will say, yes, of course, money, yes, spiritual support. But I mean, did did Jonah really know what day they were going to go? And, and did he know whether they were taking the red line or the orange line? Because if they did, if he didn't know, can we really call him a, a sponsor? That is bullshit. I don't know whether you have an ex, uh, explicit rating like uh, like Mark and me, but we, it is. We do now, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that is the right freaking foreign policy word for this. That's bullshit. And this is how, this is why you see Jake Sullivan and others going, well, we're not quite sure what Iran's role is, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, my little rant aside, what did Iran know? So I think a few different things are, are important here. Number one, anyone who really is interested, go to, um, well, if you speak Farsi, go to the Supreme Leader of Iran's website. Since July of 2022, sitting on that website, there is an interview between Asmal Khani, the guy who took over from Qasem Soleimani, the head of the uh, Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, and there's an interview with him. And he talks about attacking Israel. And it's a really, really interesting interview. It's translated by those great guys at Memory. Yeah, they do great work. They, they do do great work. Gigal is a good guy. Um, and, uh, and he says, you know, we know that missile strikes and, and terrorist attacks are not going to defeat the state of Israel. It's a really self-aware interview. He says, but you know, Israel has become this rich, modern, complacent state. They can't stand casualties. They can't do door-to-door -door fighting. That's not who they are. And so here's what we need to do. And he lays out very much the plan that needs to happen that actually happens on October the 7th of 2023, a year later. That's number one. Number two, the Iranians have been... Um, stepping up their presence in Lebanon. Lebanon is where all this planning happens. So the, both the Iranian foreign minister and uh, Ka'ani, the head of the IRGC Quds Force, have been very frequently in Lebanon over the last year. What they're doing there is that they are coordinating. They have started um, these so-called war rooms where they facilitate coordination between Hamas, Pej, and Hezbollah. Okay. And so they help them understand how they can help each other, but what their, what tactical lessons learned there are, and also sort of operational day to day stuff. And they put that in effect this summer when there was unprecedented fighting in Jenin in the West Bank. Okay. They were instrumental. They were there. They were on the ground and they were really pulling strings. So. That one last point, and I'm talking a lot, and I'm sorry if you're, if you're like, ah. no, it's fine. This is good. Um, one last point here. Okay. In order for Hamas to engage in a sustained battle of the kind that was clearly going to come after October 7th, they needed to stockpile food, medicine, oil, um, and more importantly, weaponry and ammunition. Okay. They needed all of that, and they needed more of it than they ever would have needed before, and they got that from Iran. 
Okay. Now, they did, Iran is not a no questions asked kind of a place. Okay. They got that from Iran. So did Iran know October 7th? Did they know they were going to decapitate this baby and rape that woman? No, probably not because they trust their boys. But did Iran know this was going to happen? There's no doubt. Was Iran comfortable with it happening? No doubt. Did Iran believe that it was going to be the beginning of the end? I don't think so. Otherwise, we would have seen Hezbollah join in right on October 7th. Um, but I think this was an important test run for the Iranians. And if you are sitting here in Tehran and looking at this, you're pretty pleased. Yeah. I mean, on the on the point you make about the way we talk about Iran and, and Hamas, I the analogy I always think of is, let's say you train your, you have a bunch of pit bulls and you, you raise them on human flesh and you train them to attack people. And then one day a kid is walking by your yard and the pit bulls attack the kid. Did you order the dogs to attack the kid? Maybe not. (laughs) But like you, you set them up for a single purpose in life, which is to go kill people, human beings. And then they go and do what is, what is their training and was their nature. And, and then you say, well, it's not my fault. And so I agree with you entirely on that. Um, the, um, the question I, I, I have that, and I agree with you and others who say that the, we're not paying enough attention to Iran and its role in all of this, in part because the Biden administration has this vestigial Obama administration thing that says uh, we have to have an Iran deal because we have to have an Iran deal. It's this weird tautology that actually, but why do we have to have an Iran deal? Because we have to have an Iran deal. And you can never get any inside the hermetically sealed brain palace of that argument. Um, But um, the question I'm still kind of fascinated by, which we we hear even less about, is how many fingerprints Russia has on this. Because when you say that Iran is not a no questions asked kind of sponsor, neither is Russia. And we have Russia and Iran working together. Like, I normally don't like doing cui bono analysis on things because it leads to conspiratorial thinking about things. Because sometimes life is contingent and random and bad things happen and it's not, and people who benefit aren't actually complicit in it. But given that Russia has been trying for two years to get out the West to look away from Ukraine and that it has this newfound relationship with Iran where they're very symbiotic relationship, it seems to me not unreasonable to ask the question, how much was Iran, uh, was, was Russia complicit in this? Maybe not, again, not ordering it, but when Iran is saying, you know, should we try something like this? Or when Hamas says, can we try something like this? Was Russia really not in the loop on some of those conversations? I, I, I just find that a little implausible, not impossible, but implausible. I, could, I mean, look, it's exactly the, the, you know, the right question. You know, I mean, were you in the axis of evil clubhouse when this was discussed? And what was your view about whether it was the right thing to do? Um, or did you get the memo about the discussion and say, yeah, this sounds fine, which is right. also possible, right? So there, there are, I think this is an unanswered question. There are two schools of thought. Um, one, that the Russians definitely knew about it and that the Russians actually were uh, helping to supply and, uh, and do some training for Hamas. I've seen that. I haven't seen it persuasively. Um, mm-hmm. Other side, no, the Russians didn't exactly know, but they were fine with it. Um, you know, but, and I think the problem here is, um, 
I mean, obviously, if they knew when they were doing training, that's really next level naughtiness on their part. Um, but I'll tell you, we had this, we had, uh, we had Mike Gallagher on our podcast last week. Um, and we asked him this question, but about China. Okay. So, and, and there's an exact, it's a very interesting parallel. Okay. So, um, You've heard me and others and a lot of people criticize Bibi Netanyahu about Putin. He's always, they were really slow to step up and support the Ukrainians. Even now they're sort of, you know, they're not, they're not being enthusiastic. There was a lot that they could have done early on that they didn't do. And they were really wishy-washy. I mean, in a way that was so unbecoming for Israel, this democratic state under siege, right? For Ukraine, empathy and everything else. Plus, you know, Zelensky, Jewish, yada, yada. Anyway, um, but Bibi Netanyahu has always believed he had a special relationship with Vladimir Putin. Always. I've never understood it. I thought he was delusional. Okay. But the evidence of this special relationship to him was not simply that he could go to Moscow and that Putin would pat him on the back and call him Bibi and ask how Sarah was, but that he, that Israel had complete freedom of operation in the skies above Syria. Now remember, Syria is the entrepot, right? Syria is the union station. Everything comes from there. Iran delivers stuff to Hezbollah, to Hamas, to everybody else through Syria. That's why the day of the, uh, the, day of the uh, uh, ceasefire, the Israelis actually hit Damascus airport twice. Um, that is it. And their Russians have tons and tons of surf to, surface to air batteries. They've got pretty serious coverage of Syrian skies and they've never targeted the Israelis. Okay. So the Israelis believe, okay, this is our deal. We are dealing with that. You deal with that. You know, it's a sort of a libertarian, you know, sphere of influence sort of idea. Exactly the same thing with China. The United States has, since you and I were in high school, been screaming at the Israelis, right? We give you weapons, we give you nice stuff, we give you cooperative agreements, we give you tech, and you give it to the Chinese. What the hell, right? Um, and the Israelis are like, look, we have an indigenous defense uh, industry, we need to sell stuff to people, and the Chinese want to buy it, and so we have a great relationship. They're investors, blah, blah, blah. They were, you know, put big money into the Haifa port. And everybody was like, People, you are Taiwan. You are Taiwan. What is wrong with you? Right? And the Israelis are like, no, you don't understand. You don't understand special relationship with China. Now, after this Hamas thing, China goes berserk, right? TikTok and Osama bin Laden, TikTok anti-Semitism, Duyen, Chinese TikTok, even worse. State media too. I mean, it's one of the most undercovered stories is the just wild pumping of anti-Semitic bilge across media platforms in China. So it's exactly the same thing with China, right? And the same as with, with Russia. The Israelis have, have had this relationship with China, this really important relationship with China for a long time. And, you know, all of us you know, look at the Israelis, right? And say, you know, you are literally Taiwan. You are literally the same, you know, under siege by these great, by these great powers. How can you be on China's side here? And the Israelis sort of shrugged their shoulders and they're like, oh, you know, realpolitik, whatever. Um, and of course, what's happened since October 7th is that the Chinese have 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 gone nuts. Um, and I, I say that, you know, maybe, without too much hyperbole, whether it's the algorithm supporting Osama bin Laden on American TikTok or um, pushing the anti-Semitic uh, 
mine on TikTok or it is in China, the uh, Du Yin, their domestic TikTok, which is absolutely rampant, rampant anti-Semitism everywhere and also on state media. Plus, uh, there are two uh, map platforms. So, you know, Google Maps ways that they use in China both have erased Israel from the the map. And the Israelis are like, I thought we were friends. What the hell is going on? And so we were talking to Mike Gallagher about this. And I think, you know, I think the attitude basically in these countries, in these, you know, whatever the hell we're calling them now, this axis of evil, axis of resistance, I don't know, bad guys, in these bad guys countries is in for a dime, in for a dollar, I stand with you. Right. So it is the weird response of the Chinese to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know, I love you, my brother. Anything you do is fine. I think that that is basically um, basically there. The new reality, which is Iran can do anything. Russia can do anything. China can do anything. And they will stick together and they are going to deepen that relationship and not the reverse. So. It's funny, you know, like um, I've gotten anti-Semitic hate mail ever since I've been writing in public. But up until 2016, it was almost overwhelmingly, almost uniformly from the left. And and then starting in the MAGA era became more ecumenically right wing. And then uh, now it's going back to the left kind of thing. And one of the weird things is, is I didn't write very much about Israel. I didn't talk very much about Israel. I'm pro-Israel partly for the Jewish aspect, but really more for the pro-democracy aspect and, and the ally aspect. Um, and, but you so see, you've been in fighting in this crap for a long time. I mean, you have hip boots that go up to your shoulders dealing with this stuff. How do you, how do you, what's your heuristic for figuring out how much of this stuff is uh, anti, driven by anti-Semitism? How much of it is um, weird other ideological and psychological things about Zionism, which, you know, is a, it's, it's adjacent, but it's not the same thing, at least in terms of the people who maintain different positions on this stuff. But like when I hear this settler colonialism stuff, like, you know who is one of the greatest settler colonial powers in human history? Russia, right? They have been replacing populations with Russian speakers and ethnic Russians for a thousand years. Um, you know who else is? China, where they have basically they've erased Tibetan culture. They're erasing Uyghur. They are committing, according to UN standards and principles, actual genocide in one form or another, cultural, political, sometimes actual murderous genocide. Um, I think 10% of inner residents in Mongolia now are Mongolian. They're just replacing populations with Han Chinese. China has this Han supremacy kind of doctrine. And the uh, the desperation with which people want to claim that all of their pro-Hamas stuff or anti-Israel stuff is justified by doctrines of settler colonialism, it's very hard for me to take seriously when the only place they apply this outrage is at Israel, which the argument about it being a settler colonial power is at least debatable, um, whereas it's not debatable about these other powers that they give blank. What Russia is trying to do right now in Ukraine is literally settler colonialism. And the same people who are morally outraged by Israel aren't by Russia, or a lot of them, right? The Venn diagrams have a lot of overlap. Does anti-Semitism explain it? Does anti-Americanism explain more of it than people appreciate? Do you have a 
Do you have a rule of thumb on this? Because I, I, it's very difficult for me to navigate some of this stuff. Um, you know, I think for a lot of us, and I, I've been in this business almost 40 years, um, horrifyingly, um, October 7th, but not October 7th by itself, but the reaction to October 7th has really caused me to question everything I've ever believed in in this space. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know me, I'm a neocon, right? I have uh, Arab friends, you know, from, from Yemen through Egypt to Iran and Iraq. And, um, and I've always believed uh, that, first of all, that, that they were worthy of support, that yeah. they needed us to stand up for them and that they were fundamentally good people, not in a naive sort of, you know, Pollyannish way, but, but, but that they were good people who'd been through bad things, you know? Um, I'm not sure I'm right anymore. Um, I never believed there was this much anti-Semitism in the world. I never did. Of course, you know, I got the same notes you did from Cranks. For me, it's not the marches in the UK, because I think there are a lot of things that explain the problem in Europe that you and I have talked about over the years, um, which relate a lot more to, you know, the lack of a national character, the lack of civic education, the lack of patriotism, the lack of a, a reasonable education system that, uh, you know, I mean, these are fundamentally the countries they always were. You come there as an Arab or, you know, as the French like to say, you know, a pied noir, a Blackfoot, you are always going to be a Blackfoot to the French, right? And they're going to refer you that way. So I'm less surprised by it here on college campuses. What we've seen is, um, is something that I, I still, everybody can hear me because my mouth is open. You can't see a picture of me, but my mouth is open, but the words don't come out because I don't, I, I can't believe it. Um, we had Ruth Weiss, the, you know, eminent expert uh, on anti-Semitism, Harvard, Harvard Emerita. Um, we had Ruth Weiss on our podcast and Ruth said, um, you know, it's never about the Jews. So it has nothing to do with the Jews. It's not the Jews. It's Jews are the vehicle, the excuse uh, for whatever the ideology is of the day. And so if your problem is um, is the oppressed and the oppressor, the Jews are the uh, oppressed, the oppressor. If your problem is communists and capitalists, the Jews are the communists. If your problem is white people and brown people, the Jews are the white people, unless you really don't like Jews, in which case they can be the brown people, but only if you're Nazis. And, you know, it sounds glib, right? To say, no, no, the Jews are just an excuse for every shitty idea that happens to cross the front page of the nation or the New York Times or whatever it is. But for me, that's the, that, that is actually the reality. And, and of course, the reason why, you know, the Ken Roth's Human Rights Watch, all the UN people, um, the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, you know, uh, Chris Murphy, the senator, why do they all feel comfortable? Well, because I love Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer's a Jew. He's my friend. You've heard this before. This is like anti-Semitism 101, right? I love that guy. I don't care he's Jewish. I just hate the Jewish people and what they've done to fill in the blank. And, and I think all of us believe that this was behind us. I, I, I do. I, I never, I've never in my life 
not when I sat in Gaza, never not when I sat in you know Ramallah, not when I sat in Jerusalem, not when I sat in Baghdad. Nowhere have I ever believed that I was the other, right? But now I know I am. I am. And you can't pinpoint one thing. You can't just say, you know, oh, it's uh, it's the education system. Oh, it's Black Lives Matter. Oh, it's it's you know, uh, critical race theory. It is all those things for sure. It is all those things, but those are just the the most recent framing for any of them. And I, I mean, I, I've talked a lot to our two colleagues, Yuval Levin and Matt Continetti, about this because we're trying to do some work on anti-Semitism. But it's like, you know, it, it's like start, it's like being stranded next to the Titanic and talking about, you know, better shipbuilding. You, you, you don't know because you feel like you're drowning. Yeah. So I, it's funny because I, I basically, I, I just did Dan Crenshaw's podcast uh-huh. and he asked me the question I basically asked you. And, and what did you say? Very similar that it's an over, what, what social scientists would call an overdetermined phenomenon, right? It's sort of like, um, People always used to ask me, why are Jews so liberal? And I was like, look, it's an overdetermined phenomenon. I can give you 10 reasons. And three of them are true for some Jews. And 10 of them are true for other Jews. And one of them is true for another, you know, we, but they all have explanatory power in some sense, right? And it's and you, urban, you know, Jews are disproportionately urban, which makes them more liberal. Uh, they're disproportionately educated, makes them more liberal. FDR brought them into the coalition of the Democratic Party and put them on the Supreme Court. And people remember that. You got to look at where the Jews came from. They came from Eastern Europe, where liberal movements for, brought them emancipation. And, and you know, and you can just go down. Reactions of the Holocaust made people think, made a lot of secular Jews think that they had to be on the side of, like, the coalition of the oppressed. And you can just go down a long list. Truman recognizes Israel. You go down a long list, and some of them are entirely true. Some of them ex- are a combination explanation for some people, and some of them are a single explanation for some people. But you put them all together and it's really difficult to tease out, right? And so similarly, I agree with you, this anti-Semitic, this weird anti-Semitic riot right now, intellectual riot and sometimes literal riot, there's a lot of reasons for it. And the settler colonial theory stuff is part of it, but it doesn't explain all of it. Um, I, I personally, and I agree with you, with you and, and Ruth Weiss entirely on this sort of... Uh, Jews are the avatar for the things I dislike in the world phenomenon. I wrote about this recently, you know, it was like Jews are too communist, but they're also too capitalist. Jews are, you know, they're too clannish, but they're also too cosmopolitan, right? It's like anything that you dislike, you can then point to a Jew. And what the problem is, is that they then think there's a transitive property where you can then say it's the Jews rather than say, look, my actual explanation of Jews is self-defeating because I can point to Jews who don't fit that paradigm. And like I brought up the other day, uh, you know, I was working on my book about fascism. Jews were overrepresented in the Italian fascist party in the early 1920s. That's right. They were also overrepresented in the anti-fascist parties in the early 1920s because Jews are overrepresented in politics because they're overeducated. And like, you can go down this list, but you can't say Jews were fascists or you can't say Jews were anti-fascists because it's, it covers the spectrum. Where I disagree, at least with your characterization about about Ruth, is I think that there are anti-Semites who find the lack of Jews as proof of Jewish involvement, right? There is a strain of anti-Semitism where, you know, they were warned about 9-11, right? You know, um, that, that, that the 
it's like with the real conspiracy theory people, the lack of evidence for the conspiracy proves the conspiracy because it shows how efficient it was or how expert it was. And there is a strain of anti-Semitism that 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 is true of, but I don't think it explains the broader stuff. Um, at the same time, um, you know, I, I think one of the phenomena that that the settler colonial stuff fits into is, which is why I asked whether it is more about anti-Americanism, is that there is a sense in which among a lot of people, Israel is a proxy for American influence in the world. And um, since I think America is the original bad actor, therefore I think that it's, it's proxy in Israel is the, and in the Middle East is a representative of the modernity, the sort of liberal democratic capitalism of, of, of the modern, the, the, the modern project. And that's what makes it a colony. It's not the settler colonialism for Jews. It's the settler colonialism for modernity and Western civilization that people who don't like Western civilization take offense at. And I think there's some of that going on in there too, but how much, I don't know. Like I I have all the ingredients on the kitchen table. I just don't know what the recipe is, like what proportion to put them all in to give up with a coherent explanation. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I guess... Of course, that's that's one of them. It's you know, it's like your ten reasons Jews are ten reasons Jews are liberal. Um, I, that's certainly one one reason. But it's been interesting to see that um, at least at the state level. So if you compare, for example, um, the Iraq War, right, and the reaction in Europe to the Iraq War, um, as opposed to this. You saw governments really not enthusiastic. Yes, you saw the, you know, Blair Poodle phenomenon. But the French, remember, the French were just terrible. You know, the Swiss and the Austrians tried to actually stop resupplying us with key critical weaponry. You saw government after government behaving really badly. Here, the Spanish are awful, you know, I'm ridiculous. But generally, most of Europe's governments, which tend to me to be the, the, the sort of canary in the coal mine for ideas about anti-Americanism, because there's even the conservatives are so viscerally anti-American, mm-hmm. right? They've been really supportive of Israel. And it's been interesting to watch, you know, Macron, the Germans who are, you know, weasels at the best of time, the German Greens, who I'm sure you saw that amazing video of the vice chancellor who's a Green Party member. That was fantastic. Even Marine Le Pen, you know, whose father was this rabid actual anti-Semite, you know, um, Marine Le Pen gave this absolutely fiery speech in parliament, ripped the crap out of this lefty woman uh, for not supporting Israel. Um, And so I I, I don't know. I mean, that's my long and short. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, like every explanation I have has a counterexample, which is why it's such a messy thing. I mean, another part of it is I do think, you know, it's sort of like this converse, this parlor game conversation we've had we had in the Trump years of were they always crazy or did Trump make them crazy? Right? Yeah. Did it reveal uh-huh. it or did it trigger it? Right? And so I think there's some of that analogously with the anti-Semitism. Did some of these people always have problems with Jews and this was the opportunity to express it, or is there something in the water that they've changed their view on this stuff? And I do think at the margins, it's, it's again, it is not all explanatory and it's not true for all people who are wrong about Israel or wrong about Hamas or whatever. But I do think 
that part of the identity politics argument has a real problem with Jews because the whole oppressor oppressed narrative, like Jews have as good a claim as any group in human history for the oppressed narrative. I think so. And yet, I mean, and, and, and look, there are in certain time frames, there are ones who beat us. We only got the silver or the bronze, right? But like over the long course of the data set, you look at how many countries Jews were kicked out of, how many countries they were harassed and, and beaten, and yet they endure and they survive and they actually thrive in a lot of places. And it's the thriving, I think, that offends a huge part of the narrative, right? And so there, there are records of the identity politics narrative about oppression explains why certain groups aren't doing better. And it fuels a victim-blaming argument that the left cannot abide in any way. And so there's a desperation to put them in the white supremacy camp rather than the oppressed minority camp, because that's the only way you can reconcile the, this, this tension. And we're seeing something similar unfold at a smaller scale against Asians, because they're not fitting the oppressed minority narrative either. And so all of a sudden, they want to, their people want to kick them out of the coalition of the oppressed as well. And I think that that gets a little bit at the sort of kindling that was that we weren't paying attention to that got set on fire in this moment. How much? Again, I don't know. You know? Yeah. No, listen, I agree with you. I think that's very important. I think success is an indictable offense. Um, and it is proof positive that your experience of oppression was not the same as other people's experience of oppression because they're still the underclass. They're still poor. They're still whatever. Um, But I mean, it is sort of a, you know, it's just a catch as catch can. It's interesting. We started talking about Israel and we uh, ended up talking about Jews like two good Jews. Um, (laughs) I'm not that good at it, but I try, you know. (laughs) Well, yes, you can, you can be like Paul Rudd still practicing. Um, But uh, and and I'm I don't know I don't know whether I'm good or not but but uh, but I live up to my own low standards but I, I think the problem for 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 this conversation is a we see no resolution of it um, it'll fade and then everybody will move on to the latest outrage the latest police killing whatever it is but the the Israeli problem is a much more serious problem. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we don't like anti-Semitism. We despair of sending our kids to school and what they get out of it, all of that. And it's terrible. But, you know, we still are the, the, the prosperous, the lucky ones, if you want to say, you know. Um, and we're probably not going to get sent to concentration camps. I hope not. Um, that would suck. But for Israel... There is a really, really big question. Uh, and when I was in this meeting yesterday with the with all of these Israeli briefers, there were like 10 guys in uniform and somebody from another think tank raised their hand and they were like, you know, you keep talking about this war you're fighting against a terrorist group and you're not fighting a war against a terrorist group. You're fighting a counterinsurgency. But I don't see that you have any other plan after you defeat them. And all of a sudden, there's like this cartoonish, panicked expression on the faces of the Israelis, right? Because they've got nothing to say. Because they don't know. They know they don't want the PA, the Palestinian Authority. They know they don't want Hamas. They know they don't want to occupy. But they do know that even if they don't occupy, they want to be able to go in and kill whoever they need to kill whenever they want to do it. But they don't know who can live there and manage Gaza 
without them while they still maintain those privileges. And it sounds like and looks like they have not thought about this at all, which is a recipe for disaster. It'll turn out that this is the easier part of the war that we're looking at and that the aftermath is just, oh my God, what do we do? Who runs Gaza? How do we figure this out? Who feeds them? What happens? You know, it it can't be a giant nursery school and the Palestinian Authority can't do it. So what we have ahead of us is actually, you know, not the bathos that we see now with the hostages or the arguments about were you in the hospital? Weren't you in the hospital? It's like, what are you going to do? And the answer is just, duh. I think about that a lot. It bums me out. You know, James Burnham, you know, had this famous, you know, line, he says, you know, problems without solutions aren't problems. Um, they're just facts of life. Right. And, um, but that doesn't really apply here because I, I am 100% on board about getting rid of Hamas, but uh, it's like, it's sort of like jumping out of a burning building. I'm totally down with getting away from the fire, <laughs> but I don't, I don't have a plan about how to land. And, um, and I, I, I don't know. And it, it's um, it's very frustrating. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As someone who I, I think I'm on the exact same page as you about the as the what I've been calling the axis of a-holes, right? I mean, it's like, it doesn't really matter if there's an ideological connection between Russia, China, Iran, Syria, North Korea. These are countries that nobody else wants to sit with at the cafeteria because they all smell and they're all bullies and jerks. And so they end up in a de facto alliance, regardless of whether or not it's a, you know, it's a real philosophical affinity. And so that's in part the reason why I am for helping Ukraine as much as possible. Um, what does the future of Ukraine look like to you? And, um, and if you could wheel, weasel, work in just very quickly, you were kind of, you were hard understandably about our, the Biden administration's position on Iran, which I agree with you on. But generally speaking, given our expectations of what sort of the third Obama term might've been, vis-a-vis both Ukraine and Israel, Biden's been, I think, better than expected. And also given where the animal spirits and passions in his party are, he's been wrong on a lot of policy things. But directionally, he's sort of, 
it's better than a lot of the alternatives. And I think it's important for people who care about Ukraine and Israel to at least acknowledge that, right? So take that wherever you want to go and we can close it out. All right. So on Israel, my biggest fear about Israel is uh, simply this. Uh, I mean, you know, remember Joe Biden was the chairman of my committee when I worked there. So I've known him for since 1990, 1992. Um, he is that guy. He is the old school Democrat pro-Israel. The problem is the rest of the Obama administration with him, that's not them. I believe he is holding the line here. And I think it's going to get harder and harder the closer to the election we get. I don't believe Joe Biden holds a lot of lines. I think he holds the Hunter line. And I think he holds this line on Israel. If he were not president, this would not be our policy. And I, he deserves a lot of credit for it. But I worry a lot because he's going to worry about the, the far left of his party. So that's sort of a prediction on that. On Ukraine, look, there, here, here is the problem. I think Johnson's going to come around. Um, that's what we saw where we're getting indications that Johnson's going to come around, that basically the, the, there will be, there will hopefully be a reasonably intelligent outcome, which is that the administration does need to do something about the border. Yeah. What the hell does that have to do with Ukraine? I have no idea, but they do need to do something about the border, that there will be some sort of package that will have money for Israel, that will have Ukraine and that will have the border, and that there will be a mishmash of decent Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate who will do this. Johnson said yesterday he's been talking to his Senate counterparts. He sees this. Um, he believes that we should do the money for Ukraine. He said that. And he believes that we should do the border. So if that's what it takes, that's fine. The problem is the long-term trend for Ukraine is so terrible. You know, And we can blame, we can blame everybody. I mean, we can blame the, the White House because they have slow rolled everything. Um, to the point where the Ukrainians, uh, you know, are always a day late and a dollar short. Um, we can blame the we can blame uh, the Republicans for for taking an incredibly bad isolationist, stupid line. What Mark Thiessen calls the Charles Lindbergh caucus, which I love. Um, yeah, listen, you know, it's the Hamas caucus versus the Charles Lindbergh caucus. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? It's in America, but um, so. I, I'm much less worried about the sort of the momentary budget things that have been obsessing us inside the Beltway and much more worried about the long-term outcome here. The problem is is more serious, right? Which is you know, our, our colleague Fred Kagan, he says the Ukrainians can win, but 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 they've reached a they've reached something that looks close to a stalemate at this point. And they're making some small advances. But behind the scenes, what we're seeing, and it's getting reported a lot in the German press, is that the Europeans and the Biden administration are pressing the Ukrainians for a solution, right? Um, and that's a much bigger problem than not getting your supplemental. Do you think Fred's right? I mean, we're allowed to have collegial disagreements here. Do you think Ukraine can win? I think Ukraine can win, but I think the circumstances need to change. And I don't see what changes them. Uh, they need... They need um, they need air support. They need uh, they need to to do to be able to do more in the air. They need to be able to take the fight to the Russians a little bit more. They need longer range weaponry. They need a much more solid uh, tempo of of weapons deliveries, and they need much much more serious support uh, internationally. And we're we're we've gotten bored with it, right? It's what you said about Israel. You know, we, I see nothing like my Twitter feed has nothing about Ukraine, just like a couple people. But otherwise, it's all Hamas and Hamas and Jews and Hamas and demonstrations in Palestine. Um, you're right. It, it serves the Russian agenda. 
I do think Ukraine can win. They're a superior fighting force. They're committed. Um, they they are better than the Russians, and the winter will serve them better than it serves the Russians. But the problem is we've all gotten bored with it. And the ability to sustain and um, and provide additional momentum, you know, to, to up the up the the support, I think is is very tenuous. Um, and I also think there's another problem that we never talk about, which is that the disarray in the Republican Party and the isolationist voices have really mask the fact that there's been a lot of diminishing support inside the Democratic Party for Ukraine as well. And so I, I, I worry we're going to get stuck in this frozen stalemate and, um, and that at that point, they're going to go to, you know, the Schultz and, and Biden and Macron are, and Rishi Sunak are all going to go to, to Zelensky and say, maybe it's right to come to the table now. Right. Much as Biden caved on China, right, did that meeting with Xi Jinping in California, rolled back some of the restrictions um, and then said to the Chinese, maybe you can help us with Iran. I suspect that that eternal belief that there's business to be done with Putin will then push them into some sort of dialogue um, that betrays the Ukrainians. That's my much bigger fear than the supplemental not passing in December or January. All right. Uh, you've been a sport and I love leaving with such a depressing note. So I'm going to have to like talk about puppies and kittens in my closing remarks. So just to get people to move away from the ledge. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, but uh, Daniel Butka, uh, my colleague at AI and the co-host of the What the Hell is Going On podcast available at all your finest podcast platforms. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Danny Pleka has left the studio. Um, it was great having her on. I uh, Adam and I discussed the sometimes salty language that appeared on this podcast. We we're going to do our best to bleep it, but I apologize if something snuck through. Um, we try to avoid that sort of thing for the most part, and I know some people are driving with their kids in the car. So, um, but I thought it was a very you know. I wish it didn't end on such a dour note. Um, um, I can't really fault Danny's reasoning about how things might go with Ukraine. Um, I, I'm, again, I'm one of these people who thinks that like, like it is a reasonable objection to say we shouldn't send American troops into Ukraine. I think that is a reasonable thing to say. Um, I think it is a reasonable thing to say we shouldn't send American troops into Gaza. Um, I agree with it or maybe not the reasons a lot of people who are opposed to it are agree with it, but you know, but I think as for political, geopolitical, strategic reasons, it doesn't make sense. Helping these countries win the struggles that they're in is a no brainer to me. And I've, I've yet to find an argument against helping Ukraine and helping Israel, um, in this, that makes any, has any persuasive power to me. Um, um, but, that's just me. It'll be a conversation that alas will be going on for a while. Um, and, uh, other than that, I want to say thanks to everybody for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.